Amen. This morning, <clears throat> I was reminded I was hanging out with a guy just a couple of weeks ago. He was a guy who had been in prison over 10 years, uh, has now been doing prison ministry for a number of years, both through a prison ministry and also through a Celebrate Recovery. He told a story about a guy, a friend of his who was in prison 30 years. The guy was released from prison, found Jesus in prison. Jesus found him. The first Sunday after he was released, he went to church. And there was a moment in church when he broke down and he cried because he said he felt the presence of God. And when they asked him afterwards, what was it when you felt the presence of God? He said, it is when I heard babies cry in church. He said, for 30 years, I have not heard a baby cry. And now I hear him cry in the presence of God. And it just got to me. And this morning as I heard some babies crying in the room, I know sometimes it can feel like a distraction, but praise God that we have new life and that we're an intergenerational church and that we got some babies crying in the church. I know for some of you parents, I remember uh, when we had young children, there were a lot of, uh, there were a few years where Casey felt like a single mom on Sunday mornings. Now some of you were, you provided a lot of help for her. I know especially with young children, sometimes you come to church and you're like, I don't know if I got anything out of it today. I, Somebody was pulling on my leg and pulling on my dress, and I didn't even get a focus on a song. But thank you for whatever it took this morning just for you to be here today. You're teaching your children what it means just to show up sometimes. So th thank you for that. Uh, I want to welcome all of you online today. I'm so grateful for all of you who have joined us uh, here in person. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. That's where we're going to be this morning, Matthew 21. I want to begin by just throwing up a few images of some universal signs and symbols that when these things pop up, almost any country in the world, they know what it means. The Olympic signal, I mean, the Olympic sign, like most people throughout the world, they know what this means. Now, maybe you don't, you can't put the color with the right ring, or maybe sometimes you forget, is it two on top or two on the bottom? But most people throughout the world, it's a universal symbol of an event that happens. If you go to this next one, most people around the world, like they know the symbol of a phone. Now, I know I chose an image today that is still used in places around the world that some of you in this room have no clue what that is, all right? Uh, this, I mean, you really haven't lived unless you know what it's like to talk on a phone and get tangled up in a cord at the same time. But around the world, if you don't speak a language, but you see something like this, you know that there may be a phone nearby that could maybe be a source of help for you. This next image is a, it's a, just a no smoking signal. You've seen this on airplanes. You see this in train stations. You see this around the world. And when this pops up, you are not supposed to smoke in that area. And around the world, there is the symbol of the cross. And most people around the world associate the cross either with uh, faith in Christ or with Jesus or with Christians or the church. Even though Jesus didn't invent the cross, Christians didn't invent the cross. I mean, the Roman Empire kind of perfected the cross. The Roman Empire got it from other countries. Like there were other people using the cross it has come to be known now for 2,000 years as a sign, as a symbol for the Christian faith. People wear it on, as earrings. You put it on a necklace. You tattoo it on your body. We hang crosses in church. Like it, it means something to us. It's a symbol that means something. So we're in a series this year, 52 weeks of looking at Jesus. We're going to walk through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I'm calling the overarching series, Reading the Gospels Backward. Right, so the first six weeks of the year, we started where the Gospels end, that the Gospels end with purpose and mission and commissioning. Like, it's what a lot of us hunger for in life. We want, we want a life of purpose. 
For the next six weeks, we're going to focus on the cross, and then we're going to look at the resurrection, and then we're going to continue kind of back our way, back uh, from uh, the end to the beginning through the Gospels for the rest of the year. Our mission statement here at Sycamore View is helping people see Jesus, and we can only help people see the one that we are trying to see ourselves, wanting our hearts to grow to love him better so that we can reflect him in deeper ways in the world. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, all right, this is a turning point in the Gospel of Luke. So Luke is 24 chapters long, all right? Just giving you a little perspective. And in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, what we read is, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he, Jesus, set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is a major moment in the Gospel of Luke. And in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, if you want a highlighter to put a star by it, everything turns from this point on. From Luke chapter 9, verse 51 on, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem where he knows something has to be accomplished. He's, his face is set toward a mission and a purpose. That's where he's going. Now, if you read books about people who've been assassinated or people who've died, uh, President Kennedy or uh, Dr. King or Malcolm X, very little of the book is about their actual death. Like you read a biography and you read a lot about their life, but when we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, a third of the Gospels is about the last few days of Jesus' life. And throughout his ministry, he begins making predictions. He's trying to tell people, here's what's happening. We're going to Jerusalem. And when we get to Jerusalem, here's what's going to die. And it's really, here, here's how I'm going to die. And it's really hard for people to like wrap their minds around that. But from Luke chapter 9, verse 51 on, his face is set. On Jerusalem. There's a preacher from a couple of hundred years ago. His name was Jonathan Edwards, and one of the most famous sermons he preached was on Revelation chapter 5. And there are two verses in Revelation 5 and 6, because here, like Revelation, a lot of Revelation is Jesus becoming the king, being the king who sits on a throne. And John, who wrote Revelation, has this vision of God in Revelation. And the vision is he's supposed to look for a lion. So he's looking for a lion in verse 5 of Revelation 5, but then what he sees is a lamb in verse 6. He's looking for a lion, but he sees a lamb. Now, if you look at a lion and a lamb, other than like four legs and animal, there, there aren't a lot of similarities, right? Jesus, throughout the Bible, is called by both. He's like, Jesus is kind of like a lamb. He's kind of like, he's, he's like a lion. Now, between a lion and a lamb, which one are you going to, if you had to put money on one of them in a foot race, which one are you putting money on? If there's a cage match, who are you going for? <laughs> Thank you. Right, it's definitely the lion. If you have to cuddle up next to one, which one would you rather cuddle up next to? A Probably a lamb. So here's what you got with a lion and a lamb. Like a lion excels. Like when you think about a lion, you think strength, you think majesty, you think you power, there's appearance, there's a strong voice. And when you think lamb, they excel in patience, in meekness, kindness. And though it may sound a little weird by becoming a sacrifice that provides food and clothes for the world. And Jesus brings out the best of both a lion and a lamb. So when you think about King Jesus in the book of Revelation, he brings out the best of both, where there is power and great humility. There's authority and there is weakness. Like he brings out the very best of both of them. 
So one thing that drove people nuts in the days of Jesus is they had this stereotype of what a king should be like, and Jesus just does not fit in any person's stereotypes of a king or a messiah. To this day, he doesn't fit in our stereotypes of what we think King Jesus should be as he continues to reveal more of himself to us. So here's what happened with Jesus, all right? First, last few days of his life, he's, he goes into Jerusalem and you have what is called the triumphal entry. Now we're gonna look at the triumphal entry here in a few weeks. But what happens is Jesus comes riding into the town, in the town like a king, except he's on a colt, he's not on a stallion. But it's this procession that many kings, they would have, they would have, like they rode into Rome, they rode into Jerusalem like a king. Jesus did this like a king. But when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he goes in the temple. The Gospel of Mark tells you this. He goes in the temple and he looks around and then he goes two miles away where he sleeps for the night. And then the next day he comes and he starts flipping tables. Now, have, have any of you ever wanted to flip tables in your life because you have seen and read about Jesus flipping tables? You ever wanted to flip tables and in a church or in your work or at home and then use Jesus as the excuse for why you did because I wanna be like Jesus. So what you see in Jesus, there's no emotion that is ever placed on Jesus as we look at Jesus flipping tables in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you go to this next slide right here, I just want you to kind of uh, grasp this for just a moment, all right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all tell a story about Jesus cleansing a temple. Now, I want you just, as you look at this real quick, and, and Luke should be, uh, it was my fault, Luke 19, it's 45 through 48, not 28. But here's what happens in these four. Matthew is 28 chapters long. In chapter 21, Jesus is the temple, and then the next few days, it's gonna lead up to his death, burial, resurrection. You'll notice in the Gospel of Mark, Mark is 16 chapters long. In Mark chapter 11, Jesus cleanses the temple, and then you get the next few days of death, burial, and resurrection. In the Gospel of Luke, it's 24 chapters long. Chapter 19 is when we have Jesus cleansing the temple. The Gospel of John is 21 chapters long. Yet where, where do we have Jesus cleansing a temple in the Gospel of John? Chapter 2. I'm going to get to this in just a moment. Four different times Jesus, you, you have a record of Jesus cleansing the temple. All four Gospel writers tell the story. In Matthew chapter 21, it goes this way. What we read in uh, beginning in verse 12, it says, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were selling and buying in the temple and he overturned the tables, tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And we'll stay there just for a moment. I want you to know this. Josephus was a historian in the first century world. And he tells a story about around Passover time, there would be about 255,000 lambs in Jerusalem in that time. That's just lambs. So we're not counting doves and pigeons and livestock. Can you imagine walking into Jerusalem, the smell, the sight, what you could hear? It's animals everywhere. And there were people who were taking advantage of other people because for you to come to Jerusalem for the Passover, which is where you would wanna be for the Passover, you had to have a sacrifice. Some people chose not to travel with the sacrifice. You waited until you got to Jerusalem to get your sacrifice. So if you were charging money for what people need as a sacrifice to make them right with God, they now can pretty much pay whatever it is you want them to pay. So people are being exploited. You can see how this could, could become a major problem. Now, what you see in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 12, and Mark 
11 and in Luke 19, they repeat this almost word for word. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a few verses that are almost word for word of what the cleansing story, Jesus cleansing the temple was like. In verse 13, what we read is this. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have Jesus quoting. This, this comes from Isaiah chapter 56. So imagine Jesus going into a place, trying to set it right. He cleanses the temple, and the one verse he quotes is, my house should be called a house of prayer. He doesn't say my house should be called a house of preaching, or my house should be called a house of singing, or my house should be called a house of service. It's that my house should be called a house of prayer. This should be the place where people can come and offer their lives and their hearts to God in and through prayer and devotion, yet all you can see and hear are animals and people changing money, that it's, it's, it's become something that is keeping people from prayer and devotion. And then, uh, uh, okay, so let's keep it right there just for a moment, because when you read verse 12 and 13, you see about the cleansing of the temple and what Jesus quotes and he's flipping over tables. So you, even though there's not an emotion placed on Jesus, there's no emotion that says he was angry or indignant, you get the sense that there was a lot of emotions in him. But then you wonder in the Gospel of Matthew, like what comes next? Are people upset? Do they wanna be close to Jesus? What does Jesus do? And in verse 14, what you read in Matthew, and he's the, only, he's the only writer that tells you this, is the blind and lame came to him in the temple to be healed of their diseases. So there were those who saw Jesus flipping tables yet they still saw something in Jesus that was still so inviting that they wanted to be near him. So Jesus' anger, or whatever Jesus did in the temple of cleansing the temple, apparently it didn't drive everybody away. For some, it, it drew them even closer. I want you to notice in verse 17 what happens if you go to this next verse, is that he left them and he went out of the city to Bethany. And I don't know what really to make of this, but Jesus never slept the night a night in Jerusalem in the last week of his life. In the public ministry of Jesus, we don't have Jesus sleeping in Jerusalem. He would remove himself and sleep somewhere else. It's not until he dies that he has a night that he spends in Jerusalem. Now, Matt, Mark, and Luke tell you almost the exact same story, but John is a little different because in chapter two of John is when John tells you the story about Jesus cleansing the temple. Now, John's a little different so, and he throws in a few details that we don't have anywhere else. In John chapter 2, in verse 15, it says, making a whip of cords, he drove out all of them. Maybe John was a, a fan of the game Clue, you know, like what we have Jesus with a whip of cords in the outer courts of the temple. Like he lets you know the weapon Jesus used to do it. In verse 17, what you have in John chapter 2, if you go to this next verse, is that his disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So John, unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John doesn't have Jesus quoting Isaiah 56. John has Jesus quoting Psalm chapter 69, verse 9, a part of verse 9. Because what rabbis sometimes would do, especially when they were around Pharisees or teachers of the law, is they would quote a little bit of a scripture, knowing that the people who heard them would know how the rest of the scripture would go. So what Jesus quotes is, he says, uh, zeal for the houses consume me. And then the very next verse, which he doesn't quote in the moment, but I think most people would have known how it went was the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. It's almost like this statement of Jesus of, look, here's what I'm doing to try to cleanse this place, but all the insults. 
I wonder for Jesus, if it was even over the next few days, all the insults of the world are going to be hurled on me. If you go to this next slide. In John chapter 2, verse 18 and 19, we see the Jews said to Jesus, what sign can you show us for doing this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I'm going to raise it up. So here's, what, here's the deal. All right. I don't know for some of you if you believe that Jesus cleansed the temple once or twice. So is John, like, chronologically, is he making a point that early on in Jesus' ministry, Jesus cleansed it, and then three years later, Jesus cleansed the temple again? And you're going to find scholars, and some of you have done Bible studies with people who argue about two cleansing stories, and that's fine. If we show up in heaven and Jesus cleansed it twice or 40 times, I'm going to be cool with it, all right? But I think Jesus cleansed the temple one time. And I think in John chapter 2, what John is doing, it was a literary move used by people in those days who would write books. As you have, some of you, you've probably been reading uh, Plutarch's Parallel Lives recently. I know he wrote it 2,000 years ago. It's probably on your nightstand right now. Maybe Tacitus, uh, his, his book, uh, he wrote 2,000 years ago. But what they did and what they argued for is we're going to write a book that points to events that highlight character. So it was, a write, it was a literary move for some authors in those days that they would write a book where events are pointing and highlighting character. They aren't so much concerned about chronological order. I want you to think about going to a funeral of somebody who's passed away, and let's just say five, there were five stories told about that person. And sometimes the way the stories go is it's not at the age of 14, the person did this, and then at the age of 28, they did this, and then 44, they did this. Sometimes it's just stories that are highlighting the character of who someone is. So for this interaction right here to happen between Jesus and the Jews, I think what John wants people to know early on in his gospel is that Jesus has come to be the new temple. Jesus has come to cleanse all things and to make it right. Jesus has come to give you access to God, and John wants you to know this early on. Jesus has come to give you access to God, and access to God, Jesus is going to do something to where access to God is no longer, like you don't have to offer a sacrifice to get there. You don't have to go through a priest to get there. You don't need a, a festival and everything that goes with it to get there. Jesus is going to become that temple. I think that's what John wants people to know. So when Jesus cleanses a temple, it's not just because he's angry at something or he woke up on the wrong side of the bed. It's that Jesus was driven by a passion to set everything right. And Jesus was fully aware of all the obstacles that were keeping people from access to God, which is what Jesus came to destroy. So I want to back up just for a moment, all right? I want to back up in the story. So I want to take you all the way from the Garden of Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives, into Jerusalem. So the first thing that happens right before Jesus cleanses the temple in the Gospel of Mark, you get this story. And this isn't some of our favorites, especially for some of you horticulture people in the room, you environmentalists. All right, this is not, this is not a real fun story. Jesus, he's about to kill a tree. I'm just going to let you know what happens, all right? He zaps a tree. And the way the story goes is, uh, in verse 12, on the following day, they came from Bethany. Jesus was hungry, seeing in the distance of fig tree and leaf. He went to see whether perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. So he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And later on, the tree dies, all right? It's dead. The next day, it's dead. Now, maybe some people have written to soften the blow of the story. 
But there are those who argue that for fig trees, especially in the Middle East, there are two fruits that grow on fig trees. You have figs, but then other times of the year, you have these small nodules. And if it is a season where figs are not blooming, where it's not producing figs, but there are small nodules, it lets you know there's a healthy tree. And if there are not the small nodules, you know that it is a tree that is in decay. So what some teach is Jesus is hungry. He goes up to a tree and there are no nodules on it, meaning this tree is already dying. And I know some of us are like, well, Jesus had the power to like bring people back from the dead. He could have spoken a life over the tree to make fruit come from it, but he didn't. Now, if you go to this image, if you go to a couple of slides from here, this uh, picture of Jerusalem. And I know this may be a little hard to see, but maybe right in the middle, you can kind of see that dome, the golden dome. That is where the temple used to be. And the platform, you can kind of see it from left to right. It's huge. It's enormous. This is the, this is the, temple, this is the temple grounds. So we're, what, this picture is taken from the Garden of Gethsemane. So this is where Jesus' journey would have began. He, he, he curses the fig tree, looking out over a city where he knows Jerusalem is much like that fig tree. The fig tree is not producing fruit like it should, and the temple is not producing fruit like it should. So they get all the way to the temple, and the large majority of the temple would have been what was called the court of the Gentiles. This is where Gentiles and non-Jews were able to go. Now, there was a line on the ground, a literal line, that if Gentiles were to step over it, they know that they, it was a death penalty. They would die. But there was this large place where Gentiles could gather, and there they could offer up their prayers, and they could give to God, and you know, uh, they could offer up uh, worship to God in that place and that place alone. And that is the place that had become the marketplace with all of these lambs, with all of these animals needed for sacrifice. So a part of what Jesus does is announces in the place where people were, all these obstacles had been set up, keeping them from devotion to God. Jesus goes in that place to try to overturn tables and to make a great statement, my house should be a house of prayer for all nations. But we're getting in the way of all nations coming to God. So here's Jesus trying to let, it, like, let everyone know that the temple is a place where people from all nations should be able to and offer up worship and prayer and devotion to God, but we have gotten in the way of that. Then you also had a court of the women where there were only certain places women could go. And then you had places where other people could go, but only one or two could go into the Holy of Holies and just once a year. And here's this big temple space that had become like a marketplace. So I don't think the story of Jesus cleansing the temple means that you can never sell Girl Scout cookies or other things in a church, but if anything ever becomes an obstacle to people connecting to God, we've got to rebuke it just like Jesus does. He came to set it all right. So Tim Keller points out in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, here's what happens, right? This is the Genesis 3 is when Ab and Eve fall short of the glory of God. And in Genesis 3.24, it says that God, he was pretty much forced to set up a flaming sword to keep people from coming into the Garden of Eden. So in Genesis 1 and 2, I don't think God has set up a flaming sword from the get-go. I think it grieved the heart of God to have to do this. So there's this flaming sword that is set up. And it's like throughout the rest of the Bible and the temple structure, what it became as human beings began to set up a flaming sword in a lot of other places. 
that in the temple, it's like there was a flaming sword set up to keep Gentiles from better access to God or women from deeper, more meaningful access to God or from people having deeper, more meaningful access to God. So you have this flaming sword that continues. And it's like, what's good? who's going to do something about the flaming sword? And I think Jesus is the one who stepped into the world and said, I'm going to do something about the flaming sword. So the flaming sword that keeps people from God or God from people or people from people or groups from groups, Jesus willingly chose to take on that sword. For the sword to take his own life and in taking the sword into himself, Jesus broke the sword, therefore granting access to all humanity into the presence of God. This is the good news of Christ. This is what Jesus has done. So the access that is granted to us isn't based on our effort or that we do things or, or we pass a test. It's, it's because of what Jesus has done. And there are going to be some meals you eat this week that you earn the right to eat those meals. You, you get to eat what you want to eat and when you want to eat it because you worked and you got paid and now you're going to use your money to eat that meal. And maybe you'll be invited into a, a few places this week to eat. And the reason you're invited is because of your title or your position at work. And, but, but the table we take every Sunday here with the bread and the cup, this isn't because of our title or because we have earned it or because we get to pay for it, but because Jesus paid for it. And all are welcome because Jesus has broken down any barrier that gets in the way of people having access to God. He is the access. So when Jesus cleansed that temple, for the next few days, basically every human being he was in the presence of either had to choose. Either they're gonna kill the king or they're gonna crown the king. Either they will reject King Jesus or they will crown King Jesus. And will you make a choice today in your life to crown him. Not that anything changes in the nature of Jesus if we crown Christ as king, but everything changes in you and me when we do. This morning, uh, we have two elders. One will be in the front, one will be in the back. Casey and Laura will be on the sides to receive you for prayer, and I'll be down here to the left. If there's anything we can pray for you, we're here for you. Our elder up front to my right is here. If there's anything you want to bring in front of this church, to pray for, to offer up, or to celebrate, uh, you can come and share with them. But right now, we're invited to take the bread and the cup. We have six tables throughout the room. Some of you already have bread and the cup where you are, but if you're a guest here, you can just follow the crowd and know that this table is here because Jesus has granted us access. There's going to be a verse on the screen for you to reflect on over the next few minutes. And may this verse and may the time we have just draw us closer to the heart of God. Will you bow your heads, close your eyes? And Jesus, thank you for your willingness to be obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Thank you for granting us access. God, that we don't have to go through the temple to get to you. You are the temple. So thank you for meeting us where we are. And Jesus, you you disrupted some stuff in the temple on that day. If there's anything you need to disrupt in our hearts here over the next few moments, will you please do that? Because we trust that it's not just you, it's not just that you woke up on the wrong side of the bed or that you just woke up angry. It's that whatever you were flipping inside of us today is to reflect your glory. 
So it's going to be for our good. So we want to give you permission, though you don't need our permission, but we do invite you to have your way with us here in the next few minutes. For the bread and the cup that we take today, we give you thanks. And may the bread and the cup hold us together as a united church engaged in your mission in this world. It's in and through the name of Jesus, we pray. And the whole church said, amen. Amen.